The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty God, you are in fact all that that song just shouted out. You are the high and exalted one, God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You sit enthroned in the heavens and you reign. That's who you are. Light hides you. Your glory is is astonishing and astounding. It hides you from the sight of small people like us. And most of what we say about us in that song is that we're not you and we can't see you and then we die. You are God. And amazingly, you also tell us to call you dad. Thank you. That's blow away amazing so almighty exalted dad you could draw near to us now and teach us and build us up individually and corporately would you make us more of what you mean for us to be and I pray particularly that from this time here this morning that what you would make us to be is a prayerful people people who happily and, and consistently, sweetly communes with you. Make that true for me, for each of us here. Draw us near. Teach us something here this morning. Show us something of yourself. Grow in us the sweet communion that prayer is. And in that way, grow us up as a people and bring honor to yourself. That's our prayer this morning. Grow us up. And bring honor to yourself. Make the word clear here. Have your way with us and build your church. We trust that to you, Lord. Thank you. Amen. One of the great privileges of the Christian is our access to God in prayer. Which might perhaps sound odd to say because, in fact, all people on earth pray. I mean, almost everybody prays, so not just us. But the privilege of the Christian, one of the many that Christ bought for us at the cross, the privilege of the Christian is that we have access to God when we pray. We're not just talking to the air or engaged in some meditation or being mindful or quiet. When a Christian prays, we enter into the very presence of God Almighty and he becomes personally, relationally available to us. Of course, God is always everywhere. And so in some way, God is always next to every single person, but relationally, personally available to us very differently. And so we then commune with him. That's astonishing if you think about it. And then as you think about it, you might think, we should probably pray more. Why don't we? Well, in part because it's hard. 
it is, it's hard to go there. And then when you get there, it's, it's hard to do it correctly. Something we touched on briefly two weeks ago in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 8. That passage, sitting in the context, began in chapter 6, verse 1, where Jesus is warning his people against hypocrisy. The larger point of verses 5 to 8 was about what we might call problematic prayer. Two types of problems, really, both of which exist in the world and could very possibly, and in fact do often, exist amongst Christians too. Hypocritical prayer, prayer done for the sake of being seen by others, and the sake of being praised by others, hypocritical prayer, and then also what you might call formulaic or repetitive or mindless prayer. Prayer that's done with this view that if I say the right things enough times in the right ways, hold my mouth just right and, and repeat and repeat and repeat, then in some way I can make it work. I can coerce God, in fact. I can make this come about. Both of those are problems, and Jesus warned us away from them, which sort of then raises the question, well, then how should you do it? What should we do when we go to pray? Which brings us to our passage today, verses 9 to 15. Flowing immediately out of the warning, not to heap up empty phrases repetitively, it is somewhat ironic that what Jesus gives us to help with that has become probably the most empty repeated prayer in history. He would just rip this off thoughtlessly. And Jesus never meant that. The previous context is quite obvious that Jesus never meant that. But also his introductory statement in verse 9. He does not say, pray this. He says, pray like this. This isn't a prayer, it's a model. It's, it's a pattern, if you will. Glance, glance ahead at 10 to 13, probably, or 9b to 13, probably indented in your Bible. And if you look ahead at it just briefly now, probably notice that 9 and 10 are Godward. It says there, your, your, your. So in an outline, that would be Roman numeral 1, ABC. And then it switches to become about us, us, us. That'd be Roman numeral 2, ABC. It's an outline. It's a sample model prayer. Many, 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 many things could be included under those 1A, ding, 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 ding. What he's just giving us here is a pattern that kind of points us in the right direction and gets us started. So that's what we're going to look at this morning, this model prayer in two parts. That'll give us some, some help, some guidance into how it is we can pray when, of course, we pray consistently. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read Matthew 6, beginning verse 9 through verse 15. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Matthew 6, 9 to 15. 
So we're just going to address those two parts of the prayer. We'll mention 14 and 15 as it clarifies for what he means in verse 12. So two parts, two observations. Here's the first. Christian prayer should be concerned with the worship of God first. Christian prayer should be concerned with the worship of God first. His model prayer here begins with a statement of address which could almost be a sermon in itself. Our Father in heaven. And the first word there, our, kind of alerts us to something. The whole thing is actually set in the plural. I mean, we can individually pray this, but we should also be mindful that he means for us to pray together. He means for us to pray not just in silos, me about me, but us about us. And even when I'm praying, keeping in mind I'm praying about us. There's a plurality, there's a, a plural nature to this prayer that we offer up to our Father. A statement that it is almost impossible for us to feel in the same way that Jesus' first listeners would have felt it. We can explain it and understand it. I will explain it and we will understand it easily, but it doesn't emotionally strike us as it would have struck first century faithful Jewish people who were extremely accustomed to praying very differently. Jewish praying began by addressing the God of the Bible, often with titles and attributes stacked up. This thing about him and that thing about him usually lined up there in a row to make some sort of a compound address like the almighty, holy and wise one who is the creator of all and who sits above it all in authority. Something like that. Which is entirely appropriate. I actually did begin praying just like that just now. It's entirely appropriate. It's all true. That's all from the Bible. That's who he is. But it's also very unusual for many modern Christians Unfortunately, we sang a hymn just now on purpose, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. You bring that hymn out here and you look at it and you realize something. We don't often write music like that, by and large. We, not, not us, the church, we don't often write music like that so much today. We don't often think like that. God, 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 I can't see him. God, 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 I perish and die. God, 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 God. We don't do that. We are very, very frequently God in reference to me. Me, 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 God, me, God. We do it differently. That's our, that's our tradition. And even if you've heard some of this and, and have, have grown in some of this, that's, that's kind of our, the water that we've been swimming in for a long time in our country. None of Jesus' early listeners swam in that water. God was transcendent. He was God. He's the God of Isaiah 6. That the, the very threshold of the temple in heaven quakes when somebody mentions him. The Lord, holy, holy, holy. And it shakes. And Isaiah the prophet says, whoa. He's the Lord, the God of Sinai. He's God. 
our dad? Can we say that? Are you? He just said, can we say that? Is that? That's how it would have struck them. Extremely, unusually, almost inappropriately familiar. Is that okay? Can I call him dad? Uh-huh. More than okay. Proper. God's plan on purpose. He wants himself to be known like that to us. Not, not to eliminate the transcendent like unfortunately some of our Christian tendencies are, but to combine with it something that is, that is right up close imminent, completely familiar and transcendent. Both of those things together. God on purpose wants himself to be known as our dad. He did something according to his own plan. He initiated with us. He, he chose us. He sent Christ to get us. He sent Christ to the cross to pay for us. He sent his spirit to open our eyes and illumine us. And then he adopted us as his children and therefore became our adoptive father so that on purpose by God's design we'd call him dad. Immortal, invisible God. I mean, keep using that word because that's how father would sound. Father to us sounds in English today a little too formal. Daddy is a little too, for most of us, a little too familiar. It's dad. My dad in heaven. Almighty and personal, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is the verb form of the word holy, which means at its root, set apart from, distinct from, other. So sometimes we use the word consecrated because that, that means the same thing in kind of makes clear in our minds, set, up, set apart, as regarded as special. But we're praying here, the first request of our Father is that his name, that is he himself, who he is, would be set apart and regarded as special, as other. That he would be revered by us and by other people, exalted above us by us and other people. And if this is Roman numeral one, a, the things you could put here, one, two, three, four, five, six, etc., might be things like the attributes of God, his actions, his abilities and character, his utterly unique divine nature. Whatever's true of him and marvelous about him, his righteous purity, his omnipotent power, his persistent, gracious love of us, his people. So this is not just, God, would you set yourself back into that transcendent category, but God, would we, looking at your transcendence, your might and your, your holiness, and looking at your imminence, your, your deep, passionate, gracious, merciful love for us, that those things, all that you are, one, two, three, four, five, whatever it is that comes to your mind, whatever it is you find in a passage, that you would look at that and say, oh, beautiful, oh, Awesome. 
That's who you are, Dad. That's who you are, awesome and so sweet. Would you make this known about you? Would you make other people, like my non-Christian friend or my non-Christian family member or my spouse who's struggling or my kids who are having a hard time, me, would you make me see that and revere you for it? Make people see who you are and honor you for that. Would you be exalted? Would you be hallowed? Make it so. And your kingdom come. So God's kingdom, we've seen this a bunch of times in Matthew so far. God's kingdom also is called God's kingdom or the kingdom of Messiah, Christ's kingdom, kingdom of heaven, all the same. What we're dealing here is the realm of his rule, which we've said a number of times is not a physical location. Not yet. And what we'd be praying here, this point would be that the extent of his rule would spread and that it would become a physical place soon. And we would ask God to extend the effective rule of Christ in its breadth and its depth. To include more people under your rule and to include more of me under your rule. So it's a prayer to God, please gain influence, gain sway, gain control over our hearts and minds and lives, those who are your citizens and those who are not yet. Gain them. So you might put under here a prayer for revival, a prayer for some sort of repentance or some sort of awareness of, of the holiness of God, something that would just draw people and draw me into kingdom rule more completely, more deeply. But we would also pray that the whole plan of redemption would come to an end and that Christ would come and that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's where this is all going. Lord, bring it. Bring the kingdom. Put down all rebels. Put down all competitive kingdoms would-be kings. Make the end come. Deliverance, justice. Your kingdom come. And until then, your will be done here on earth as it is right now in heaven. Praying both for his revealed will what he's told us in the Bible so we can know it, that that would be understood and obeyed, that it would be followed, trusted, your, your will would be done here. But not just that, because if you think there'd be kind of a lot of overlap with kingdom come, and if that was all that we meant by his will, we're also praying for what is sometimes called his hidden will, what we can't see and don't know. Lord, would you bring to pass your plans and your purposes in your timing that's how heaven works. Would you make earth work like that too? Not my plans and my will and my timing, but yours. And so you could look around and you could say, I, I see me at work in the world. I see other powers and other rulers that have plans, that have agendas, that have a will, that they're pushing, sometimes with a lot of power. Would you, Lord, cause your will to be done here? Heaven works like that. Please make the earth work like that too.
You put all that together, and it's apparent that each of those three things, there's kind of a lot of overlap between them. There's, there's similarities, and even as I talk about them, I kind of bleed one into the other. There's, there's a, a fair bit of overlap. You could add in all the subpoints beneath them, and probably you could put some subpoints under one point or another. There's, there's a bunch of similarity, but in a very real sense, the main point is that it is not about me or us. God's name revered, not mine or ours. God's kingdom come, not mine or ours. God's will done, not ours. This is where Christian prayer starts properly with God centeredness. We pray wanting Him lifted up. And we pray that not just that that would be, but also that that would be delighted in. I'll, I'm trying to be clear here, so try to follow what I'm saying here. I'm, I'm going to try to express a perhaps subtle difference. When we pray in this God-centered way and we put those words out there, we, we might lift those things up, but we might still accidentally do it as if we're talking about concepts. Lord, I want some, for instance, I want some system of governance that is divine to be. Lord, there's this thing called God that I want people to know stuff about and put in the right place, put above everything, not, not below. To put this thing called God in the right place, that, that would be appropriate and proper. Please make that so. Okay, but what properly hallows God's name, what properly honors him, is not just when he is known, but when he is known and delighted in. Think about it for yourself. If somebody regards you properly, according to your spot, I know that guy is the boss at work, and I hate him. But I do know that he is the boss at work, and I respect him. I do everything he says. Well, that's something. That's better than open rebellion. But it's obviously not honoring to you. What's, what's actually honoring is, I know that, and I am so thankful. I love the fact that this guy, this gal is... Not just the acknowledgement, the intellectual agreement, but the delight in it is what truly would hallow his name. What truly would be for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done is that these things would be, would be known, and would be adored. So we're praying for facts to, to attain and for the worship of those facts to control us flow out of us. God, open my eyes. Don't just make it so. Make it beautifully so. We're reaching for something here that is beyond us. We're asking God, would you please do a movement within the hearts of people, start with me, that I would honor you, that I would, that I would obey you, that I would follow you, that I would work in accordance with you, and that that would be my pleasure. 
That requires a tremendous work of God. But that's where Christian prayer begins. And that, in fact, is why all along we've been saying that prayer is not just for the getting of stuff, it's for the building up of the prayer to the honor of God. If, if you pray like that, and if God were to answer that, that's what would make your heart whole. It would heal you. Not, not just abstractly, correctly posited that God is God and that God reigns and he gets his way. But I was made, you were made as a human being, you were made to worship him and adore him and walk with him in communion. And that prayed for, that happening would be life for you. You go into the secret place without distraction and you say, God, would you come near? And he does. And would you say, God, would you lift yourself up in my eyes? Would you extend your reign into my heart? Would you carry out your will in my life for my good, for my delight? And he says, I will, I will, I will. That's your life. That's your life. Now, the next part of this goes into asking for some particular things. But do you realize this is your life? Start here. This is your life, which is why the end of the book of Habakkuk. Check the end of the book of Habakkuk later if you don't recall it exactly. The guy says, There is nothing. I have nothing. Nothing's coming. The crops are gone. The herds are gone. And you don't just make more herds. So there aren't going to be any herds. And yet I will praise him. Because he sat here with this God. God did not give him daily bread in this sense right here. There isn't going to be any actual food tomorrow. I'm going to starve and die. But I've got life praising him. This is your life, Christian. Christian prayer begins here. And I think that's actually not true for most of us. I bet for most of us, our Christian prayer begins in verse 11. Is that true? Most of us begin in verse 11, Lord, I need. And we do, and it's there, and we'll talk about it. It is there for sure. But Jesus says, what you really need Roman numeral one. And all these other things will be added unto you. I promise. I'll take care of the rest too. But seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. Christian prayer begins first with God. God's glory, which is for our good. It's where our life is found. Start there. But don't stop there. Because the second point is true too, also. 
Here's the second half. In faith, we also ask God to meet the needs of his people. In faith, we also ask God to meet the needs of his people. And I say in faith, just to remind us that there's a, we're doing Christian prayer, which is different. Not different because of what we pray about. Everybody on earth prays and asks God for food. This, this is not different because of what we're praying here. We're praying the same thing, but we're praying it differently. We're praying because we stand in a spot where, where because of what God has done for us in Christ, he's put us in this place where he says, knock and the door will be opened. Pray in faith. Not rotely, not mindlessly, but pray depending on me. And I will meet your needs. And at verse 11 here, it does switch to us, to ours. I mentioned earlier. We, God's people, give us this day our daily bread, we say. A request that's easy to understand, but we might miss the emphasis here a little bit because of what our lives are like today. Ancient people mostly lived day to day. An agrarian society is dependent on this year's harvest, and most people who worked for somebody else were day laborers who got paid at the end of the day and gave you food for tomorrow with just a tad left over. It was mostly life day to day. So, so daily bread today was everybody's life, more or less. That's not the, the uniqueness of this. The, the, the statement doesn't focus on daily bread. It focuses on give. Father, would you give? I'm not thinking that there are any other gods out there, and I'm not thinking that I can get this with my own, my own mind or my own muscles. I, I recognize, Father, that you're the one who gives. I, I, may, I may plow and plant and weed and water, but at the end of the day, you give the crop. So please do. Would you give the bread I need? For bread, obviously he's talking about food. But the request could make us think about, if we're going to add in things underneath of this, it could and should make us think about all of our material needs. Shelter, health, safety, protection, all the things that we need. Guidance and decisions, unity and peace and relationships. All things that we need every day. God is the one who supplies all that. All that we need to live according to his will. Maybe not according to my will. All we need to live in his kingdom Maybe not in my kingdom, but all that we need, he will provide day by day. He often leaves us, I find, you find us, I'm sure, he often leaves us uncomfortably right there in the day by day spot. I kind of wish that we could go, you know, month by month or year by year so I didn't have to pray so much and live by faith so much. I could live by sight a little bit. I'm just saying. Isn't that how we usually think? I'm a little bit uncomfortable that I have to pray again today to ask you to give. What I really would like is for you to just fix it all and make it fine. But he kind of keeps us in this spot. Trying to put us back in the, the place of those who live daily and reminding us, I give, I give, I give, I give, I give. Come ask, I will give. And live by faith in that future grace. 
our material needs and also our spiritual needs. Verse 12, particularly forgiveness of sins. Now, sometimes this verse and verses 14 and 15 that expand on it, sometimes this has been a source of confusion for some people who read this, particularly in isolation, who take this right out of it, read it, and start to think about theology, especially the theology of salvation, and start wondering, does this teach, and they're looking at it, see the conditionality here, as I forgive others, if I forgive, he will forgive, and if I don't forgive, he won't forgive, does this teach that I'm saved, forgiven of my sins, by forgiving other people? An odd thing to base it on, just, but maybe I earned forgiveness by forgiving? Oh, then furthermore, does this teach that my salvation might flip-flop over time depending on whether or not I'm forgiving this person or that person? Here I'm forgiving, so now I'm forgiven. Now I'm unforgiving, and so I'm not forgiven. Back and forth, is that what's going on here? Is that what this is saying? And some people get confused. And the answer is no. It's not. Remember the context. Plenty of other places in the Bible that are talking about salvation make the theology of salvation very clear. We are not forgiven in relation to works so that no one may boast. That's the Bible. No one's going to be able to say at the end in heaven, I'm here because I forgave. They're not because they didn't. That's good on me. Nope. That has nothing to do with it. That no one may boast. Passages that are about salvation, about the theology of forgiveness, are very clear that we are saved through simply and only trusting in God's grace given in Christ's death on the cross. That's what pays for sin. Christ's death. The only other alternative would be my death. And we don't both half die. One or the other. Christ's death paying for my sin on the cross. Trusting that is what saves me. I didn't get it by what I did, and I don't unget it by what I don't do. Now, if we were to look at this passage in the light of teaching about salvation, there are a couple other things that might bounce around the back of our minds. And we should note that a person who has been saved is a new creation in Christ. Remember how the Beatitudes, which begin the Sermon on the Mount and set it up, how the Beatitudes are describing the character of a Christian. This is what you are. This is what you are. This is what you are. Number The fifth Beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is just riffing off of the fifth Beatitude. A Christian, somebody who is a Christian, has some new nature planted in me that I have, I have the nature of God planted in me so I am like he was to me. I am merciful towards others. A genuine Christian lives mercifully, mercifully forgiving others and if the person doesn't live mercifully forgiving others, the fifth beatitude, this passage, 
The parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 18, very similar to this, all are warnings saying like, hey, something doesn't line up here. A genuine Christian in some way or another has the nature of God and is growing and you don't seem to. Are you actually a Christian? There, there's a question raised, a, a, a challenge to presumption raised. By this passage, if we look at it through the lens of salvation, and we could go further into that, but all of that is a long way in a different direction from where Jesus intends this to go. Which is good news. If you didn't follow that, you didn't need to. Sometimes people go that path, so I need to talk about that just a little bit, but that's not what he's talking about. Remember the context. This is a passage about prayer. About the prayer of people that Jesus assumes are his disciples. In a context in which, from chapter 6, verse 1, he's concerned about hypocrisy. That's the larger section here. And what he means to have us think about and do is that every time we experience guilt over our sin, and we know it, we're, we're convicted and we mourn, he's teaching us, if I can kind of expand on this, go to God, praying in faith, calling him your father, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, confessing, asking for his forgiveness, using the words of verse 12. Think, think like this. This is the pattern here. And that'll be a reminder to you, a check. Am I coming to God rightly? Am I coming to God actually broken? Am I coming to God actually mourning? The anger in my heart towards that person who I'm not forgiving pokes me and says, hypocrite. It pokes me. It says, Hypocrite. If I, as I say, Father, forgive me as I've forgiven others. Whoops! Because I'm not at all forgiving toward that person. It alerts me to a problem and points me towards consistent Christian living. This is Jesus helping us to pray non-hypocritically. In short, it's a check, a reminder. It warns me. That those who are forgiven are those who come to God humble and broken in faith saying, Lord, please forgive. Not those who just act like they are humble and broken coming to God saying, please forgive. In faith, Lord, forgive me of my sin. And lastly, don't lead me into sin in the first place. Lead me into righteousness. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, that is, the evil one. Probably some of your translations have a footnote there that points out, deliver us from evil is actually the evil one who very much wants to lead us into temptation. Lord, keep me back by your spirit at work in me and in us. Incline us to follow you. You could put underneath of this, if this is 2C or 2 when ABC, 
one, two, three, four, five, could be any number of my situations, any number of the people that you know, where you'd say, Lord, I see him, her, walking right along the edge of the cliff. Pull him away. Lord, I see, I, I recognize hardship is coming into this person's life, and, and hardship is often the times when we wonder and doubt. Show yourself to him. Keep him from the evil one. To pray for yourself and for us all together like this. To pray, Lord, lead me into the way that's righteous. Show me what that is and incline my heart towards it and cause me to love it and give me faith that sees the promise on the other end of this righteous path is life. Give me faith in your future grace. Help me to see it and know it and chase it. Lead me into righteousness and away from the one who hates me. As with all the other requests in, in this whole prayer, in fact, there's lots of overlap here. There's lots of ways that you could see. I, I don't know which, how would I correctly categorize this? Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's just a pattern where Jesus is pointing out, here are some things to note and not forget. Which way you put them, doesn't matter. You start with God, move to yourself, you'll be fine. Maybe you'd find it helpful to, remember the book I referenced two weeks ago, Praying the Bible? Maybe you'd find it helpful to use that book, that model, in conjunction with this model and say, when I come to Hallowed Be Your Name, what do I put there? Well, open up to a psalm. Open up to, as I did this morning, again, knowing I was going to be preaching, I looked at Psalm 5 this morning. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. You could stop there and you could pray, Lord, what about you do I see here that I want exalted, that I want you to press into my heart and make me cherish? That you are the one who hears my groaning, that you are attentive to my cry, you are near and personal and sweet and dear and you love me and you are my king and my God. Help me to see both of those things. Hallowed be your name. And so on. Take the, take the Bible. Take a psalm. Take any passage and lay it over this, this general model here and approach God in the quiet place, knocking and seeking and asking. It's your life. And you are assured that he will reward you. He'll meet you. He'll answer and he'll bless. So what I prayed at the beginning, and what I say here at the end is, my hope is that we would hear a sermon about a prayer and do more than just know some things, but that it would actually move us to prayer. That there'd be some sort of guidance, some sort of encouragement given to you to say like, yeah, I, I can do that. And I want to. I'm going to pray for that again here at the end. Maybe you pray that for yourself. Lord, I, 
I see this, I understand it. Will you draw my heart onto you? Will you incline me to go to the secret place and meet with you? I want to pray. Help. That's what I'm going to pray now. Pray with me. Lord, we see this outline before us here. We gather in the information. But would you please do the work needed in each of our hearts that makes us pray? That's life for us. And we are prone to wander. We are easily distracted. At least I am. Would you do the work in our hearts that draws us away from the world, that makes us long for meeting you in secret, that makes us want to commune with you because we have found and we believe we will find again life there. I can't speak that into reality, Lord. Your spirit must make that true for us, so please Make that true for us. Incline us to pray. And then meet us and build us up, please. That's our request here this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.